This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. And before we do anything, Richard, what was the music that you were playing before the show started? Uh, it was the sea and the cake. Oh, no kidding. Yes, sir. It sounded very uh, Motown-ish. That yeah, I had no it was idea. A kind of ambient, like weirdo, electro, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Low, yeah. low, low intensity piece. They used to play up at uh, NUR right before we do the show, or right after the do- we do the show, there would be a show called Airplay, and they would they played there numerous times while we were doing the show. It was very entertaining. Manufacturing Descent since 1996, as I was saying, this is hell. Toward the end of the 19th century and in the early 20th century, city elders and do-gooders decided that Chicago had a juvenile delinquency problem. With so many children coming from single-parent homes and with the majority living in single mother homes, single mothers who predated the concept of aid for single mothers. These homes were often sites of poverty. Lacking supervision while trying to survive, many of these children were committing crimes. And back then, when kids committed crimes, they were put in the same jail with adults. This is, of course, this, of course, led to all sorts of cruelty and brutality directed at the child inmates by both other inmates as well as the guards themselves. This led to the advent of ideas like compulsory education to get the kids off the streets and out of trouble and to get them in schools and educated. The problem with compulsory education is it criminalizes truancy, making it a crime to not be in school and getting educated. This was often a crime committed by immigrants whose struggling families may not have seen the value of education, especially when they're trying to survive. Compared to survival, education could be seen as a luxury. At home, these children may never have heard English spoken or never read a word in English. They would eat food from the old country, and that culture surrounding them was also soon criminalized to a degree. When caught, the truants would end up in any one of a number of institutions on the city's periphery where they were disciplined into what it was like to be a good contributing member of society. And often that discipline was brutal as well. In a few minutes, we'll talk to Martin Bilheimer, author of Mother Chicago, Truant Dreams and Specters Over the Gilded Age, on how the city and the Chicago School of Sociology addressed what both saw as an epidemic of delinquency in the late 19th, early 20th century. Martin is a library clerk at the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. Martin was born in the historically diverse uptown neighborhood of Chicago in 1970. His interests include classical Arabic literature, the history of witchcraft, Hitchcock's vertigo, art, politics, and subaltern military music. He plays the bouzouki, as well as several other instruments rather poorly, and has been involved in music and other ill-advised pursuits for over 20 years. You can find out more about Martin's book at his publisher's website, Feral House Publishing. That's feralhouse.com, and that is one of the best bios I've ever read on this show. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Monday, so producing is, well, who the hell knows anymore? Richard, it's you, apparently. <laughs> yes, it is. How was your weekend, and why are you here on a Monday? Well, uh, my weekend was pretty tame. Uh, <laughs> and I'm here because the rest of my week is pretty busy. So oh, okay. I can't make it on my, my normal day of Wednesday. So you're here today because yes. you're going to be working on Wednesday. Yes. Working for real. For real. An actual job. <laughs> So there's an ad I keep seeing that's really bothering me because it reveals so much about whoever the copywriter is who who wrote the ad. The commercial is for an electric car, I think. 
I get so angry every time I see it that by the end I'm distracted from whatever the hell it is they're trying to sell me. In the ad, an electric car driver pulls into a gas station for no reason other than to clean his windows. Mind you, his windows are sparkling clean in the ad, so there's no real reason for him to clean his windows. But when the electric car driver reaches for the squeegee and whatever you call that receptacle that holds the water for cleaning your windows, he's stopped by what appears to be a uniformed gas station attendant. You don't really see gas station attendants in uniforms anymore, so I'm really wondering if the copywriter has ever been to a gas station. The gas station attendant tells the electric car driver no gas, no squeegee which the electric car driver repeats incredulously to the attendant, asking, no gas, no squeegee? Other customers start asking the same question, repeating, no gas, no squeegee? So what does this reveal to me about the people who wrote, then produced, and then aired this ad after somebody else okayed it for airing? That there are certain parts of the United States where none of these people have ever been, because I know this may come as a surprise to some of you, maybe, I doubt it, but squeegees are not ubiquitous in every gas station across the United States. Sure, in some parts of the country, the water receptacle may still be there as an homage to some lost past, but they're now empty other than being filled with a combination of garbage and spiderwebs. But oftentimes the bucket isn't even there anymore at all and may have never been put in place to begin with. For instance, Let's see. In my neighborhood, where we got gas last night, there is no evidence of squeegees or a free window cleaning service ever having been available. I know this is going to sound ridiculous, and it is, but if you are at a gas station that does have squeegees and buckets, is it a sign that, to some extent, you are in the area that has some degree of white privilege and wealth? While the ad takes such privilege for granted, next time you are in a not-so-rich, not-so-white neighborhood and get gas, don't be surprised if instead of no gas, no squeegee, it's just no squeegee, no squeegee, no matter what. But more importantly than the white privilege of squeegees, Richard, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what was your highest low point of 2021? What was your highest low point of 2021, Richard, at the gas station in your neighborhood? Do you have squeegees? Hmm. I, I, you know, I don't. I don't know. I don't think so. I, I've been in your neighborhood. Maybe. I, I don't know, man. I don't usually wash my windows at the gas station. At the gas station. Yeah. Unless I'm on a trip. And <laughs> then, on the highway, those those gas stations usually have them. So. Yes, they do. Uh, when our car got over 110,000 miles, we stopped cleaning it, and it's a disaster right now. We keep saying we'll clean it once we trade it in. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, the face covering, or the face mask. The coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century drive, flash drive, featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. The trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. We do not accept any foundation money. We do not accept any commercial sponsors, and we don't make enough profits to be a not-for-profit. So 
it's all on you. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can tweet it to us at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Richard will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Martin Wilheimer on his book, Mother Chicago. Again, the question from hell is, what was your highest low point of 2021? What was your highest low point of 2021? And you should go check out the graphic that Alex has included with this week's question from hell about a guy who's waiting for his steak to grow mold so he can eat it and then get high from eating moldy steak. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Richard has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is rice. There was an article posted at something called purewow.com with the headline 24 of the best hangover cure, hangover cures, hangover foods to ease your pain. However, as the article warns, there's no cure for hangover, but certain ingredients just might help alleviate some of those pesky symptoms. And by the way, of these 24 best hangover foods, there's only one that we had not mentioned already on (laughs) the show. And that was? This one. The rice. (laughs) The story states, there's a reason your mom your mom would always give you a bowl of white rice whenever you had an upset stomach. That never happened. It's easy to keep down, and it's rich in carbohydrates, which can settle symptoms like diarrhea or nausea and boost your blood sugar, says the Cleveland Clinic. I guess the Cleveland Clinic runs pure wow. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Stick to white rice instead of brown it may be easier for your gut to to digest if you aren't feeling too queasy crack an egg into the pot to make fried rice that makes this week's king hangover cure rice specifically white rice putting people before profits which turns out to be a horrible business model this is hell and if you'd like to support our horrible business model that puts you before profits subscribe to our weekly bonus patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell which streams live 10 a.m every friday and podcast shortly after patreon.com slash this is hell on friday's patreon podcast this past friday's patreon podcast I've been staring at that oasis in the desert that is democracy in our unfair and unequal world for far too long, and it has become obvious to me that it's a mirage, an illusion, especially under neoliberalism. In fact, neoliberalism needs you, me and all of us, to believe that mirage is real, that democracy still exists for under neoliberalism, to control all of our choices and to limit any political imagination we may have left. Bipartisan neoliberalism ensures that the idea of putting the power of the law behind profits instead of protecting people is enshrined and that there really is no alternative because none is offered. Neoliberalism needs us to believe there still is democracy behind all our decisions because when we can be blamed for any shortcoming distracting, that distracts us from the role of neoliberalism in our destruction. Ever wonder why neoliberalism is never mentioned in mainstream establishment corporate and so-called public media? Because they are all doing their part in protecting corporate power, just as the government now does, which has thoroughly infiltrated democracy, turning it into a kind of consumerist authoritarianism that cannot be questioned, criticized, or in any way analyzed or discussed. Think about that for a moment. 
The name of the system that controls our daily lives cannot be mentioned in our media. Well, this is not the media, so Friday's, this past Friday's monologue on Patreon was all about what shall not be named despite it being at the heart of nearly all the problems we face every day. We also shared a classic interview that is currently unavailable online other than on Patreon, an interview from December 9th, 2006, just a little over 15 years ago, with international law scholar Asli Bouli. Asli had just posted two articles in the winter 2006 edition of Middle East Report. One was titled, International Law at the Vanishing Point on the Legal Arguments Deployed by Israel to Defend Its Conduct in the Recent Summertime Wars in Gaza and Lebanon that had just occurred back in 2006. An article which she co-wrote with past guest Richard Falk, who was the UN Rapporteur on Human Rights. The other was called The U.S. and the Iranian Nuclear Impasse. It was about exactly that. The conversation, These conversations uh, show how little either issue, Iranian nukes or Israel's disregard for international law, have not changed much over the past 15 years. But you can only hear all that by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. And you're going to want to subscribe to Patreon more than ever this week because we are offering an additional Patreon podcast on Thursday. We ended last week's set of shows by having a conversation with Chelsea Barabas, who was or who has written an article for Real Life magazine titled Hall Monitors about the expanding police state in schools across the United States in reaction to the very exaggerated fear of mass school shootings. I mentioned to Chelsea that we actually interviewed someone shortly after the Columbine shootings who in the midst of every establishment media outlet reporting mass shootings in schools around the rise, that they, in fact, were not. They were actually declining in number of mass shootings, according to the Centers for Disease Control. So this Thursday at patreon.com slash this is hell, we are playing our May 22nd, 1999 interview, an interview from the 20th century with Liz Palmer of what was then known as Brat Magazine. Liz had written about the exaggeration of and fear surrounding uh, mass school shootings and what that might mean for students in an increasingly policed education system. It's a weird interview because the show was very different back then, as it is always evolving into something different, as I hope we all are, constantly taking in new information perspectives that give us a better understanding of what the world around us is like. But you can only hear my spiel on democracy in the U.S. under neoliberalism being a mirage, a 15-year-old conversation on Iran and Israel, plus this Thursday's bonus pa Patreon podcast with a discussion from one month after Columbine about how mass school shootings were not on the rise. You can only get all of that as well as a discount on all of our merchandise, a special discount that only subscribers get, only Patreon subscribers get, by going to patreon.com slash this is hell coming up chicago and the new science of sociology's reaction to what it saw as the delinquency epidemic at the turn of the century we'll also have this week in rotten history some of your answers to this week's question from hell which is what was your highest low point of 2021 what was your highest low point of 2021 and i'm going to be thinking about that question all week because i have no idea we'll also tell you about an opportunity where you too can become a crew member here on this is hell live from the united states where the law is far too often the crime this is hell at the turn of the century, from the 19th to the 20th, Chicago determined it had a child delinquency problem with families, especially immigrant families, being ravaged by any number of problems from tuberculosis to poverty. It was determined that the real problem that was facing all of these children were 
broken homes, as determined by academics and social workers. It was a problem they believed could be cured by Protestant abstemiousness. Oh, my God. I was practicing this word all weekend. Abstemiousness. <laughs> that is restraint, especially in what one consumes, like in food and alcohol. What was needed was these children had to be disciplined into what it meant to be a law-abiding, contributing member to early 20th century capitalism. Here to guide us through the labyrinth of ways in which social control confined children at the time, Martin Bilheimer is author of Mother Chicago, Truant Dreams, and Specters Over the Gilded Age. Welcome to This Is Hell, Martin. Thank you, Chuck. It's an honor to be here. I'm a great admirer of the show, so this is a dream come true for me. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. So I want to get some real basic questions out of the way first. What what was, and I, I hate asking a question with the title of the book in the name, in the question, but I'm going to do that right off the bat. What was the driving force behind Mother Chicago? Is it the city, the wealthy and the powerful, the Chicago School of Sociology? Was there, was there some sort of popular public demand? Who or what was the driving force behind Mother Chicago that would care for so-called delinquents? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's it's actually all of those. The wealthy probably seems to have seen it as a kind of charity case, like they do now, like philanthropy does, uh, to show that it's it's interested in the world around them when when you know it's really not. Uh, and the nascent sort of uh, gestures towards the school of sociology, which was completely fascinated by the idea of juvenile delinquency. It didn't. There wasn't much interest in that before, but I suppose as the city grew up and it grew larger and it grew more populous, the powers that be actually started to become interested in the people that were living there rather than just uh, the industry around it or the industry that would grow up or certain areas. So it's sort of as if after they had exterminated the entire native population, they suddenly became curious about their own, which had supplanted that. Um, reading those early documents is very strange because their their tone is kind of archaic sometimes, which makes it pretty amusing to read right now, but also clearly utterly fascinated, almost to a sexual level, uh, especially in the case of the girls, actually. It's sort of bald-faced. But it... At any rate, it's a kind of vertigo of fascination or something, if that makes any sense. That Yeah, it, it does. Uh, it erupts, yeah. And you refer to the institutions that Mother Chicago created as three sisters. What were the three sisters, and what did they have in common? If they're sisters, how are they related? They're related geographically, and also the populations were shuttled back and forth. I took the name from the Three Sisters of Macbeth, just because I love Shakespeare, and it seems to fit. Um, the first, the most obscure one, uh, the Chicago Parental School, was located on what's today Northeastern Campus, I think, around um, Foster Avenue and Central Park. And it was a very strange building. Uh, it was originally just built as a juvenile detention center that would take kids at truants for the most part. And then, of course, the, it expanded from truancy to so-called damaged kids to you know, whatever. Um, it's an odd place because nobody was really quite sure what to do with it or how to run it. And the stays that the kids were there were only three months. They were supposed to be rehabilitated and then 
put out back into the system if that didn't work and end up in prison and so forth. Right next to that was a massive sanitarium, uh, tuberculosis sanitarium, developed by Dr. Theodore Sachs to treat the TB epidemic at the same time. Um, that was commandeered by City Hall and basically turned into a sort of hireling system. Um, and further west is Dunning, uh, it, at the end of Irving Park, almost to the suburbs near the mall out there, which was ultimately a cemetery, a mental institution, sometimes a CB san sanitarium, and occasionally used for juveniles. So it sort of sums up all the three. It was also, because it was a massive cemetery, there was something like, I believe, 50,000 bodies still underneath that area in this very bleak concrete zone at the edge of the city. Do you know, is that story about Dunning and the White Sox having their original baseball field out there and the phrase out of left field coming from Dunning being over the left field wall? Hmm. No, it's funny. I've never actually heard that, believe it or not. Um, I, I, I'd like to think it would be true. I remember going by uh, on the bus and you'd occasionally see people climbing over the fence, which I suppose was that left field wall. But um, yes, it may be true. It just always freaked me out. I always wonder if it was just something that Ken Burns made up because I don't trust Ken Burns. So you? No, no, don't don't trust him. Yeah, I, 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 his, uh, especially that hovering around photographs. I find that a really cheap tactic. So yeah, I do too. Uh, you write that perhaps here in these uh, institutions like the Chicago Parental School, perhaps here we uncover one of the laws of the American ghostly. The landscape accumulates in the present by using surplus forces from old conquests, annexing territory quite literally, mapping city history, apartheid redlining, and the ideology of architectural style, and performing what is an essentially military function, running from the ground to the eye. And you ask, how was it all done? By consent or by law or by reform, by the use of instruments created by the intellectuals who mediate between central power and its subjects, by convincing you that the magicians are fully able to control the forces they have called up when it is quite obvious that they cannot. What were the people you call magicians? What were they trying to control with apartheid redlining? Was this about controlling immigrants? Was this about controlling uh, race? Was this about controlling class? Or is it a combination of all of those? All of it. And I would say that all one could subsume it or actually circle it with class, uh, quite literally. Um, the magicians themselves are various interests, the same powerful interests we have today, whether it's uh, city hall, property developers especially, and the theorists from the universities. I mean, it's funny, naming, naming them is somehow seems to me not particularly important because in the end we all know who they are. Um, and they know who they are <laughs> at the risk of at the risk of sounding paranoid, but after all, the city itself is a machine for such paranoias. I think that these various operations, whether in housing, whether in education systems, uh, whether in policing, come about almost they seem almost natural in there isn't one point where one theorist stands up. Uh, and everyone bows down and goes, yes, he's right. In the case of, say, Turner, whose frontier theory became urban planning, basically. Even somebody like that 
is actually kind of an unsure figure who's operating in a milieu, in one case, a, a powerful academic milieu or intellectual one, if you like. They seem to operate independently, but also together at the same time. Or at least it seems that way from what we could call the street, from the street level, from our ordinary life, from my life, your life, listeners' life, walking around the city. We see the nodes of these powers, or we see the after effects of them, usually after effects. Because it seems to me that we live in a kind of void where all the elements of the past in power and ideology have sort of ceased to exert direct influence and instead exert an un indirect influence, which feels like being haunted. Um, I don't know if that answers the question or whether it makes it more vague, which is probably the same thing. <laughs> and you also so, read late, late capitalism has generated odd perspectives and phantoms, paramemories wandering over the gray landscape. So I just wanted you to continue on what you were saying, but what do you mean by paramemories? Yeah, it's a sum total of certain uh, of forces. They could be military ones. They could also be entertainment forces or psychological forces. At this point, most people probably accept that the unconscious exists, or at least you know have some idea that it does. I'm not particularly talking about that though. I'm talking about more a more surface series of images around the city uh walking down one one walks down the street or down an alley and the area say cut off or it stops or walking by empty lots there's a kind of strange wistful feeling that you get sometimes or also a feeling of terror as if you've been i've been here before but even if you haven't huge tracts of the city tend to look the same with minor variants, those are the historical ones. This building has been torn down, been replaced by another one. Uh, townhouses built, uh, the end of, say, the rubble of movie theaters, especially. Uh, those, that's what I call a paramemory. The things, a sort of reverie that these areas or parts of the city spontaneously generate. I think, I believe everybody feels that. Yeah, I definitely feel that way when I'm walking around. Uh, in your opinion, why was this military-style training seen as the best way to care for or even rehabilitate these children? And do you think that that military style of training and discipline, do you think that reflects any exaggerated fear of juveniles? Yeah, it, it probably does. I mean, it, it, it probably has very many different origins, say, Boy Scouting, right, which is tied to the colonial and, and English, Baden-Powell's Boy Scouts is sort of an, uh, uh, an idea that he got while well, in Afghanistan, of all places. Um, and the military history of the city, it's, in, in, you know, it's, to, it's totally militarized. Uh, the diagonal streets that used to be Indian trails, especially the ones that run along the rivers, were used to offload military supplies during the conquest, uh, things like that. I think that the city is under a kind of military spell, maybe less so these days when, during the neoliberal epoch, when it's more information trading and uh, various sort of gibberish ideologies like that. Everything is information. Everything can be traded back and forth. Maybe the military aspect has moved 
into areas formerly occupied by entertainment these days. I'm not quite sure about this. I'm sort of guessing around. Um, and I believe, you know, from what I've researched to try to find out that juvenile detention centers or those places uh, like the parental home were actually heavily influenced by English public schools, which is a system for the wealthy, for the sons of the wealthy that appeared in England in the early 1800s. So it's quite strange to see that as a model for wayward kids, wasteful kids, uh, slutty girls, all the kind of you know, detritus, supposedly, of the city. Um, English public school is a strange system because nobody really knows what's taught in it. It doesn't have any kind of special curricula. It's merely a name that's stamped on it. And, you know, Boris Johnson went to public school, whatever. It was somewhere to train colonial administrators. And that somehow became a quasi-militarized system of juvenile detention centers and, and the like, and orphanages, things like that uh, in Chicago. The military aspect um, in, involving extreme regimentation of the day, uh, clothing, drills, actual military drills, and they even had an army band in the parental school. That later disappeared almost entirely. The only thing that remained was a series of passports where your day would be regulated and then you were checked off. Uh, your behavior was checked off. Those passports were presented on various halls, things like that. So I would say that the military gave way to a kind of mild, milder institution that was in some ways a lot more insidious because it was then cloaked in early sociology, early Chicago school sociology. It was closed in the idea that you would help rather than just simply discipline and break down. But they did break you down, too, just in a slightly slightly more complex way. And I just want to repeat a little bit of what you were just saying. You write that the parental core system was influenced by the contemporary German youth movement clubs, American muscular Christianity, and by the sporting cruelty mm -hmm. of the English public schools. In an amalgam of Old World Wright and Davy Crockett, the model for the grubby street urchin was the wealthy British imperial scion, which would seem to be contradictory as you're talking to somebody who is in poverty and then you're using as the role model somebody who is wealthy. To what extent was this a kind of rationalizing or normalization of colonialism and the thinking around colonialism? Yeah, I think it was. And I think precisely because it was contradictory, all those forces and ideas within colonialism produced very, very odd things, and, and that's, that's one of them. The um, subjects to those places then started strangely to be seen as if they were Apaches. Maybe it's a sort of guilt on the part of the administrators, I don't know, to, to think psychologically. Uh, perhaps this is sort of unacknowledged guilt that they had killed, they had, you know, exterminated the previous children, so now they were going to help the uh, uh, current children, immigrants themselves, to better themselves somehow. Um, there may be some of that. I, I think there is, but that it falls under the realm of a kind of individual psychology, I think, more than a collective one. I think, again, these strange puzzle pieces are kind of like this country itself, which is a jigsaw of contradictions, and those contradictions vanish in the rather haunted reality of daily life. 
And you're right that the outermost parts of a city retain certain qualities of a rim zone, even after they have become part of the metropolitan sprawl. Along with commercial and financial capital forces, psychological forces also move over these successive barriers that have now been overcome. So what are the psychological forces that put these facilities at the rim of Chicago's north side? Was it an expression of out of sight, out of mind, in order to turn a blind eye toward the truant and what has seen as their delinquency, or was it more than just out of sight, out of mind? I think, yes, I think in, in part it's that. It's, in part it is to push them out in the same way that, say, the city of London has pushed out the poor into its suburbs, and Chicago is doing that too. Um, but it's also strangely a way to expand the city by overcoming its own barriers, those barriers um, being institutional, then pushed out towards the edge, then becomes something else the city has to overcome. So it will cross those barriers and annex even more territory and presumably move the outer barrier even farther. It's what I get from Turner's frontier thesis, which was very influential in city planning was a constant need to overcome barriers and also from Marx who says that capitalism hates barriers. It's enthralled to them, but it has to overcome them. It has to constantly overcome them. I, I think the city operates the same way. It's a capitalist city. It physically operates that way. So the barriers, the, the edge of the city, the where the wild children are or where the dead are or um, places like that become something that needs to be overcome. They're overcome intellectually or physically, usually both. Um, and that's, that's a phenomenon of these sort of rim areas, some of which are never overcome. Like Dunning is a perfect example of that. The uh, area out towards the west of the city, which is still looks like a concrete wasteland as if they weren't really sure what was going on there or what was to be done with it. After that, you get to Oak Park and things like that. So that outermost rim area was overcome with the suburbs, um, but it still remains there, kind of blot um, or a void. And we're not quite sure why it's there because it's no longer at the edge of the city. It's, I suppose, actually, you know, quite, easily within it now. We are speaking with Martin Bilheimer, author of Mother Chicago, Truant Dreams and Specters Over the Gilded Age. You mentioned the 1879 establishment of the Carlisle Industrial, Indian Industrial School, formerly the U.S. Army Carlisle Barracks in occupied Iroquois Confederation territory of Pennsylvania. Carlisle itself was very concerned with the regulation of clothing. Whites believed the Indian children could not be civilized while wearing moccasins and blankets. Length of Indian hair was also important as it is today was a similar civilizing process if you will happening in institutions for truants in chicago to what extent uh, were immigrants which made up a large portion of truants seen as uncivilized just as indigenous were deemed uncivilized to a very strong extent usually in terms of things like dieting the uh, uh the dieticians and, and and food was it was an integral part of those juvenile institutions, they thought, I suppose, if you control what someone takes in and out of their body, then you control them. Um, it, it, it was very, very hard for 
the theoreticians to understand something so simple as to why, you know, Germans ate too many potatoes or things like that. So the idea was almost to, to make a common cuisine. It's quite strange uh, to, to regulate absolutely everything, to regulate silence, to regulate food, to regulate night and day. And perhaps the most important thing is the food in the end, um, regulating the outer image of somebody by telling them they can't wear shorts, things like that. Uh, that works both on the mind and body. It's true. And it works as a spectacle. If people see a bunch of kids from these juvenile institutions, all uniform, it, you know, it shines out order, it shines out cleanliness, things like that. Food, on the other hand, is something that was eaten collectively, privately with them and something that directly affected their entire system, their inner system. So the inner system is the outer system. Um, and I, I think that certainly those institutions like Carlisle um, were extremely influential on that. It's almost as if let's make everybody an Indian, which is quite a strange idea, um, especially if you're Indian. Uh, the recent revelations in Canada about the various Indian industrial schools, things like that, uh, are quite strange because everybody has always known what's going on at those institutions. Always, not only the people in it, but the people that control them and run them. It's it's never ever been a secret for a second. So to, so I'm sort of sidetracking here, but to talk about revelations in this area is is patently absurd. So is this was this a process of erasing ethnicity through shame to any degree? Yeah, and and there were certain ethnicities that they thought they could they could use. I think an idea, at least politically, was Anton Cermak, who basically created a white block. Lithuanians had been allowed in. Uh, you know, like you, they created a kind of uh, Caucasian caucus, I guess you could say, that could be used as a buffer against any other rival political power or um, black people or um, anything that they considered was threatening to them at the time. And I mean, Cermak's got a street named after him right now. So, I mean, another thing is the street names always gives you a clue as to what is really running things or, you know, what did, what did actually run things. And who were the powerful and how the, how the machine functioned as well. You write that yeah. co-founder William H. Pratt is a paragon of liberal colonialism. And you quote Pratt writing, the Indians under our care remained savage because they are forced back upon themselves and away from association with English speaking and civilized people. And because of our savage example and treatment of them, we have never made any attempt to civilize them with the idea of taking them into the nation, and all of our policies have been against civil uh, citizenizing them and absorbing them. So were these ideas, no matter how backwards they may sound today, were these ideas at that time seen as progressive? Were they progressive relative to the earlier policy of, as Pratt calls it, our savage example and treatment of the indigenous? Yeah, they were, and probably far, far worse because of that. It, You know, it, it's long reach still exists today. I mean, even even a reactionary like Ronald Reagan, who said uh, we should have assimilated the Indians, not exterminated them, has a strong strain of American liberalism 
which you know Pratt's quote exemplifies it. It's absolutely perfect. It also has a strange sort of self knowledge. He knows, you know, whether he knows exactly what he was saying or he was just a conduit for those liberalizing ideas towards the Indians is irrelevant. Um, the coming off as a total barbarian, you know, kill exterminate the brutes became completely out of fashion while the policies of extermination became more subtle and more far more effective probably and you uh, mentioned luther standing bear captive at carlisle since he was young he had been in hollywood since 1912 he was elected chief of the oglala lakota on july 4th 1905 he would appear in films such as 1931's the conquering horde 1935's fighting pioneers and cyclone in the south both of those from 1935 you then quote luther standing bear summing up his old carlisle days with his usual admirable economy he said as a child i understood how to give I've forgotten this grace since I have become civilized. You add the Carlisle grounds are today part of the U.S. Army War College, the name of which abides the pedagogic character of the place. What do you think Luther Standing Bear meant by once understanding how to give and then when civilized losing that grace? Or more importantly, why would whites see losing the grace of knowing how to give as becoming civilized? Well, I think... That way of giving he's talking about is something that doesn't expect a return. It's a completely natural way of doing things, which itself means civilized, uh, not uh, civilized in the sense of being part of a civilization, not civilized in the imperialist sense. Um, it's probably at the heart of everything. With, with giving, there is there is no debt. With um, that sort of giving. There is no difference between what someone else needs and what you have. You don't actually have it. You just give it. All those things. Uh, I, I think all those things are something that needs need to be stopped. I mean, it, it's probably in that one gesture or that one way of living, you know, that is, is probably the first and the final stop of the civilizing machine. It needs to destroy that. You write of the contemporary trends in liberal reform, especially, quote, especially strong is the influence of Jane Addams and Hull House. The Chicago Women's Club is founded this year. This is 1889, I believe. A bourgeois organization for civic betterment whose subcommittees are named after salient areas of interest, home, education, philanthropy and reform. A truant aid committee is established to provide clothes and other necessities to enable the kids to attend school in the hope that un, uh, unterrified souls would gravitate toward reform. How is being what you call a bourgeois organization for civic betterment reflected in the work of Jane, Ma Jane Adams, Whole House, the Chicago Women's Club, uh, and in their work on education and its newly compulsory nature? Yeah, I, that's 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 probably re related to your earlier question in, in the sense that these civic organizations saw themselves as as a civilizing force. They're not that much different in some ways than Pratt. I mean, Adams did some admirable things. It's absolutely true. A lot of extremely admirable things, but it's also tied to these disciplinary structures, um, these ideas that. If we don't do something about this problem, the problem will mutate into something else. And 
everything from the books that they were, the, the books that the children were given to way of talking, way of being, all that stuff was, it was, it was part and product of a very strange idea that Adams and those people had that all kids were basically potentially bourgeois middle class and therefore their ways of being and their lives, uh, you know, was essentially the same. And it didn't matter whether somebody ate or not, as long as they appeared or as long as they acted or spoke in a sort of clipped and proper bourgeois way, if you like, or they, you know, they, they, they weren't rude or things like that. They didn't seem to understand that those two ways of life, the, um, sort of home economic stuff that was being taught around that time to the children of, of the wealthy or, or the middle class and the actual street life of the kids in the various institutions were, were totally different. They were from a completely, completely and utterly different world. They, they don't, they have very little in common, I think. And you point out the eugenic terms such as under-inheritaged became more Yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is a great one, and uh, Spellcheck did not know it. Uh, such as <laughs> under-inheritaged uh, become moralistic and less technical. These words with the will be replaced by underdevelopment or disenfranchisement. This kind of language is never free from atavism. Old roots return like migraines. Evil is mentioned several times in the commentaries on the law behind idle hands that are stretched out to attractive vices in the broad highway to crime and the children of the street are a menace in their possibilities for evil. These are all in quotes, of course. Kids always laugh at the invocation of any and only evil. They are laughing at what pains them over curdled milk and blue bottles, idle hands and ours. And we note that in never in, that in going over the uh, corpus of the law and the various reports that form the outset of the Chicago Parental Schools referred to as an experiment. So was it always changing, always adding new inputs and studying different outcomes? Were they, in some sense, always evolving and therefore, to some degree, continuously inconsistent? Yeah, um, both. Both. Um, wildly contradictory and consistent at the same time. Programs were picked up, abandoned with something that seems like a whim, almost. Uh, this process or anti-process or ruin or whatever you want to call it lasted an incredibly long time. I mean, the place closed in 1975, so they were going at it for some, you know, 70 odd years, uh, 65 years. Uh, and it, because of that, the place seems like a sort of strange patchwork of ideas, some half tested, some not. Um, the earlier, um, like in the, the quote that you from my book that you just read out loud, um, the, the earlier very eugenic style gave way to a quasi sort of new age, uh, you know, amalgam of, of health words and, uh, and, you know, various other sort of long Latinate fixes um and evil itself kind of vanishes in some way as as an idea there the kids aren't evil they're just and after all all kids are the same right you know so they're just uh 
clearly they've made a few wrong choices and these need to be corrected, or their environment is wrong and that needs to be corrected, or there's 10 other different theories all going on at the same time. And depending on the fashion outside, in the outside world, those, those theories are discarded, picked up. Sometimes they mutate and they're brought back. Um, evil then just becomes an environment. What created the evil environment? Well, they're not going to say it's actually the city that's created this evil environment, which produces the kids. The child-producing machines called women are uh, themselves created by capitalism. They obviously can never, never admit that. So that propels you back into a series of kind of trends in sociology that you use to treat people, treat them now, no longer discipline them, which, again, I think is actually far worse if you – if you want to compare the two, it was probably it's easier to get smacked because you know who's smacking you. You don't know who's necessarily applying the treatment because it could be so subtly yeah. done. So uh, right. you were just saying the environment is wrong. This is how you point out throughout your book about this idea that it's because these children come from broken homes. But you write, if poverty is not an act of fate or the sum of material corruptions, do not the reformers leave themselves open to a fatal disappointment after all means of reformation have been exhausted? So were the parental homes doomed to failure by refusing to address the more systematic or systemic challenges that were faced by truants. Yeah, and it's that very thing that they could not possibly address because without that, there would be no truant homes. You wouldn't need them. They, they could not not address that at all. It would mean it would negate them. It, it almost as if in a uh, kind of horror film where once they see the thing, uh, this coveted treasure, it uh, starts glowing and everything vanishes around them, almost as if they were afraid that stone institutions would just disappear in, the, in a kind of morning light if they had actually addressed those questions. They could not, they could not possibly uh, address those questions. It would, it's outside of their sphere of understanding, just as they thought that civilization was outside of the sphere of the Indians' understanding or discipline and Protestant abstemiousness, which I think I pronounced wrong, was out, out of the uh, understanding of, of the poor. And you, you uh, so in truancy, I guess, is truancy the outcome of poverty and the need to, for children to contribute financially to the family? And if truancy is the outcome of yeah. poverty, are laws around truancy, was it about the criminalization of children living in poverty? Because I'm wondering how much that continues to this day. Yeah, I think it absolutely does. I think growing up, um, you know, the idea of social workers was, at least for myself, was something to be terrified of because they wielded a certain amount of power. They mediated between the law, as in physically the cops, and the home. Um yeah, I, I think that and truancy is a rather bizarre thing, right? Because people are truant from school because school is boring. I mean, it is. That's why I, to add a personal personal note in there, um, it's it's it to me makes complete sense that that children are truant. It, it's it, it's demand. It's something that uh, is the absolute sum of all they're given and shown. Um, I, you know, I, I think there's a mystery in there. Uh, and also, as you said, too, 
if you're not able to eat and you have to get money somehow, going to school is not going to be your priority. Eating is going to do it, and you're going to do it by any means that you can. And you point out that by 1912, various studies are regularly undertaken by private foundations such as the University of Chicago, the working class home and environs is the subject. And you mentioned Family Disintegration and the Delinquent Boy in the City in 1918, written by Erwin H. Scheidler, which, as you explain, aims to be a summa of progress thus far. Annual reports of schools and institutions are compared with crime demographic to predictably indict degenerate family practices and broken homes as the spring of all proletarian delinquency. Is If broken homes were not, uh, I'm sorry, you mentioned this proletarian uh, delinquency. Was delinquency by children in different classes viewed differently or were only the working class seen as delinquent? Yeah, the, the, it was viewed completely differently. Uh, the same way it's viewed now. The uh, rich son is someone who, if he falls into disillusion or uh, you know, whatever crime or whatever, is is kind of thought as someone that's just gone slightly wrong. He's obviously his family cannot be blamed for this because they're outstanding citizens. So it's viewed as a kind of a, a, an eccentric tick at best. I'm reminded of recently, two years back, a, a judge. Sentenced uh, was sentencing a Dupont uh, child. Uh, he wasn't really a child; he was an older guy by then. But um, he's uh, been responsible for molesting a bunch of kids. It's a disgusting story. But um, when he was sentenced, he was not sentenced to regular prison population because the judge was concerned about his safety. Right. So, I think for certain class of kids, there is a concern. And for another class of kids, there's a very strange form of fascination and at the same time indifference and, uh, in the case of reformers, disappointment that the kids did not follow, uh, did not turn out the way they should have from, from poor homes because they absolutely, they were given everything, right? I mean, they might not have given everything financially, but they were given everything in terms of discipline and education. Those systems doled, doled out by reformist forces, uh, managed by reformist forces. Uh, so you also point out that now is the appropriate time to pay tribute to rumors, gossip, and tall tales. For in every case, every story heard on the street proved to be more than true. That is, the conspiracies of Dunning, the leaving home to learn fear at the parental, and the sanitarium Snow Whites. Why were the rumors more than true? That is, what does it say about these institutions, or sisters as you call them, when gossip and tall tales do not live up to the real fear experience in each? Was it literally unimaginable how awful they were. I think it's, it's slightly different than that. I, I think that the rumors on the streets are kind of like a, a grapevine or whatever, um, themselves became almost, they were, they were like our fairy stories, or they certainly, they were on, on, on par with the kind of fairy, fairy stories and legends that you learned that all, all kids learned. They, um, they became ways to talk about things and also to disguise them and to extend the same sort of threats that those institutions embodied. They became myths. You had werewolves, vampires, magicians, you know, like, like kids do, secret societies, mafias running everything. That, that was a way to, to deal with them because they were, they were still rather misty. 
even uh, when one was you know forced into contact with them, you see, you wonder for years what what their, what their real purpose was. I still wonder. I I don't know myself. Um, but legend, city legends, work like that. I think, and every everything I heard and everything I was told about all turned out to be more than true in the sense that it not only told the truth of the situation in various Audi homes or things like that, but it also covered them with a kind of aura to use a word that's now become new agey. But I mean it in terms of something seen in the distance that one isn't quite sure what it is, a kind of uh, spell. I find that I'm, I, I borrow words from magic and things like that uh, to describe all this because cities are very magical places in some ways, but I, I, the terminology works, I believe. I don't know if you, if you think so. But. Yeah, yeah I, I think it works well. You mentioned that past a large artificial hill covered in black tarp and the rows of concrete sewer pipes, someone has built a little shrine for the residents of Potter's Field. It is called the Reed Dunning Memorial Park and is suitably easy to miss. You pass under the sign and down a short concrete path which leads to a circle. Around the circle are placed several stones with inscriptions, a few lines about those who have always personified this area as mad and too tubercular uh, spirits of the air. So to you, what does this suitably easy-to-miss park reveal about how Chicago views or wants us to remember the history of these institutions? Yeah, the park is very strange. It was uh, basically the work of one guy, Barry Flagg, and uh, several others helped him build the park, but he was the one that gathered all the information on the cemetery that was in that area and the poorhouse that was a major city poorhouse around there in Dunning. Um, It's quite odd because it looks somewhat half finished and you can't really tell what it is. Right next to it, there's a, uh, the back of a warehouse and there's some of those very strange kind of tract houses that look almost suburban around it, surrounding it. The park is quite small and quite pagan looking. It has a stone uh, circular sort of uh, pathway with old oaken trees. It doesn't look like something out of the, uh, the Wicker Man or something like that. It's very odd. Um, I don't think anyone goes there. I think it's, uh, I think what it reveals is that you can memorialize anything, even the, the sort of worst things. And the, the area around it will still retain those specters even more than the memorial does strange way. Yeah, you made this one story I just wanted to mention real quick. You write of the past always being in the present, which is something that's really important in your book, and it's, I, I had this long discussion uh, just this past weekend about how the history is never in, history is never in the past. History is something that is always with us in a current. And you write, mm-hmm. this is perhaps why to this day police still riddle the grave of Fred Hampton with bullet holes. They are terrified of a stone which they superstitiously believe to be inhabited by spirits. What they do not realize is that their target does not lie there where does their target lie today what don't they realize about their target not being fred hampton's tombstone yeah they 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 mistake they mistake the uh they mistake the symbol or they mistake the object for the idea a a, um uh which is kind of kind of funny because early on in school when we're, we're taught mathematics uh, the common criticism of kids is, well, if one plus one, one of what? 
um, that's uh, you know, and the, the teacher then says, no, this is just purely, it's it's purely just one. Right? Kids don't understand. I still don't understand. It's advanced math. You're getting pummeled with this stuff. And the that question, one of what? What is this thing? And what's the difference between the symbol? Is also seems to me to be something that they don't want you to learn. Strangely enough, in school, or it's a question they don't want asked. Perhaps it makes the police feel better that they riddle the grave of, of Chairman Hampton. They feel that if they do it enough, the grave will disappear. Well, it will eventually disappear. Uh, but uh, Chairman Hampton's work is not because it provides, I believe, the only uh, political opposition to the forces of power in the city, and that's a uh, that's class. And uh, there's also very interesting aspects of this book about how the Chicago School of Sociology contributes in many ways to the eugenics that are and categorization of races and ethnicities that the Germans eventually put into place with the help of IBM in 1933. And again, as you point out in your book, uh, IBM does everything to erase that history to make certain that people don't know that that is the case. Uh, one last question for you, Martin. We're speaking with Martin Bilheimer, author of Mother Chicago, Truant Dreams, and Specters Over the Gilded Age. And our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. So this is Chicago before welfare for single mothers. This is an era when, uh, you know, Whole House had to come in and help out these women who had been having so many difficulties with raising their children. So is if this is Chicago before welfare and life in poverty is criminalized, do you think that history can repeat itself with social services and a social safety net deteriorating more and more? Do you think poverty either has been, always been criminalized, or do you think there can be a new recriminalization of poverty? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, the question, I love the question from hell. Uh, do, do you mean a, a, re, a recriminalization of it? Uh, do you mean it, it being used in a different way against the citizenry? I'm not quite sure. Yeah, if, if this kind of process can happen again, where people become institutionalized, basically for reasons of poverty or does that already happen is that a lingering legacy still exist or is that something that can be reborn again yeah I, yeah it's true i mean it's, it's a very good question it probably has to do also with the historical processes of things like institutions they've, they've now become a target to be looted by uh neoliberalism these days uh you know in the same way savings and loans are, and also things like Reagan's deinstitutionalization of people. Uh, you start to get, we all start to get trapped in this kind of question because it's just saying, oh, so you don't think everyone should be institutionalized. No, of course not. Um, then, then everyone should be just not treated at all and let go. And, and therefore, I, I could easily be seen as someone that comes off as a kind of libertarian, I believe. I'm not at all, quite the opposite. But um, as far as the core of your question, as far as a kind of, as far as various rebirths go, it's funny, we always seem to come back to a kind of magical terminology, don't we, in some ways, you know, like resurrection of the dead or something like that. Uh, it, it's a hard question to answer because I don't know, because I think being that we're in the present, 
the ideas of the future, they can lead one astray. So to, to answer, it's a great question to answer. I, I don't know. How about that? That's how a question from hell should be answered by somebody saying, I yeah. don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I assume that, that, that uh, uh, there is much people that are out there much wiser than I. So maybe I can answer the question. Also, the question itself might not be important. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Especially when you consider that history, again, never ends. It's always with us. Martin, thank yeah. you so much for being on our show. We have been speaking with Martin Bilheimer, author of Mother Chicago, Truant Dreams, Inspectors Over the Gilded Age. Thank you so much for being on our, our show this week and starting our final week of 2021. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Chuck. Indeed, it's a, it's a great honor. I hope to see you again. All right. Thank you very much. You Bye. are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is hell. If what you just heard from Martin Bilheimer on Mother Chicago, if that made you in some way enlightened, that enlightened you in some way, deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding, or made you feel like you actually learned something or realized that Yes, this really is hell. Show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks for your support. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is, what was your highest low point of 2021? And Rob H. answers, maybe a couple hundred feet below sea level. All right. Apparently, he's a scuba diver. <laughs> Rob, thanks again for the office chair. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and an office chair provider. Yes, <laughs> that too. Mark S. answers, I had a kidney stone and went to the emergency room. They kept me overnight but released me the next day because they didn't have enough beds for all the COVID patients. But I contracted one of those killer hospital bacteria infections that really did try to kill me for five days until the antibiotics worked, but I still had the kidney stone. So my boss said, go ahead and take Friday off. <laughs> that was nice of him. That was nice of him. Wow. I had MRSA and a kidney stone, but my boss said I could take the day off. That was very kind of him. Micah D. answers, well, since you asked, winning the question from hell by poking at Chuck's to what extent questions <laughs> and having him call me a jerk or some such, then never finding or hearing the clip where it was read, then having the trucker's cap not make it sway to me, to my apparently Bermuda Triangle of a male address, then seeing said triangle gobble up a second trucker's hat. <laughs> on the bright side, the hat would likely not have fit on my head of unusual size anyway, he well, says. Well, it's all, it's a fit, it's a one size fits all. I have no <laughs> idea why you're not getting a trucker's cap in the mail. I'll have one sent out to you, Micah, if you still haven't received it. I don't know why that would be the case. Any more? Yes, we have a few more. All right. This week's question from hell is, what was your highest low point of 2021? Mark A. answers, he bowled three strikes in 10th frame on my birthday, then got drunk and lost the scorecard. <laughs> okay, he had a turkey. That's great. Three strikes in the 10th frame. That's a turkey. Bradley R. answers, I'll let you know on January 21st. <laughs> 
don't know. Yeah, there's something going on there. Yeah. Some kind of election or inauguration of some sort on the 20th we don't know about? Not this year. Uh, I don't think so. Dan K. My shoulder was really sore after my second COVID shot. Then I realized it was my other shoulder. <laughs> and that's all we have for today. I had the exact same thing happen. I think I got uh, arm pain from the flu shot, not from my booster. And it's been kind of killing me ever since. And I can't remember which arm got which thing. I don't know. Again, the question from hell is, what was your highest low point of 2021? What was your highest low point of 2021? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins whatever they want. And when it comes to This Is Hell merchandise, you can see all of our stuff right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. And Richard and I are now going to alternate on who will be reading this week's Rotten History because it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in Rotten History. You start off, Richard. On December 14th, 1287, 734 years ago this Tuesday, the northwest coast of the Netherlands was hit at high tide by a massive storm that caused one of the most devastating floods ever recorded. They were recording floods in 1287? Apparently you could backtrack that. <laughs> I guess so. In the St. Lucia flood, so named because it occurred on the day after the Feast of St. Lucia, Ocean water from the North Sea broke through sand dunes and other natural features that divided a large freshwater lake from the wild ocean, so that the lake became a body of salt water known as the Zaderzee. The Zaderzee, and get this, St. Lucia? Yes. Patron saint of blind people. Always getting blind, blamed. We're, uh, the blind, always getting blamed. It is the Winter Festival of Light yes, Festival. Yes, Look at you. And I, I looked it up. It also kind of stemmed from the Norse uh, Scandinavian festival where they uh, wheel, tried to wield off evil spirits and alter the course of the sun. Yeah. And, uh, and, they, that, and then they got a flood. Yeah. And, then they, and it's Santa Lucia is the song that they sing. Like if you're at uh, Yule board or a smorgasbord, they'll have these girls come out wearing candles yes. around their head. Yes. And uh, now they're electric because when there were flames, <laughs> little kids got their hair caught on fire. And wax on their hair. So yeah, big Swedish thing. So the storm surge worked its way inland across Holland and deep into northern Germany. After it abated, the regional geography was permanently changed as entire islands and rivers had disappeared. The busy trading city of Stavoron was all but wiped out, while the formerly unimportant town of Amsterdam now had access to the ocean and began its growth into a major European port. But the flood obliterated scores of towns and villages across northern Europe and killed an estimated 50,000 people. The Zyder Zee would remain a body of salt water for more than 600 years until in 1932, a major dam and reclamation project closed it off from the ocean once more, changing it back into a freshwater body known today as the Izumere or Lake Eisel. <laughs> Lake Eisel. Sounds like some sort of demonic god from Ghostbusters. And I'm certain that there's no way the ocean will ever reclaim 
Lake Isel. I mean, you'd have to have one of the most devastating floods in recorded history for that to happen. And what's the likelihood that one of the most devastating floods in recorded history could happen in the same place twice? Oh, yeah, probably pretty good with climate change. In Rotten History, December 15th, 1960, 61 years ago this Wednesday, police in Palm Beach, Florida, arrested a 73-year-old man, a World War I veteran, and retired postal worker named Richard Paul Pavlik. And if we know the guy's middle name, I'm guessing he's an assassin. And that he was a postal worker <laughs> and a veteran. Yeah, there's so many things that are combining here into a real amalgam of assassination. Pavlik had abandoned his home and property in New Hampshire and begun stalking John F. Kennedy, who had been elected president but had not yet taken office. While living in Boston, Pavlik had become infamous for showing up at public meetings to give bitter right-wing rants about his hatred of Catholics, including the locally prominent Kennedy family. By the way, does anyone know if today's far right in the U.S. has it out for Catholics as 1960s far right people did? Because I'm just asking for a friend. I'm just very curious about this whole anti-Catholic thing, if that's still simmering. After the feds received a tip that Pavlik had purchased dynamite and was following the young president-elect around the country, they alerted Palm Beach police who made the arrest. I mean, what's the big deal? All I'm doing is following the president around. I just happen to have some dynamite on me. It's a free country, isn't it? The cops found Pavlik's car packed with dynamite, and he confessed that he had come close to detonating the blast a few days earlier as Kennedy emerged from his lodgings to head for Sunday Mass. And this guy is really anti-Catholic. Pavlik had intended to ram his car into Kennedy's limousine and then trip the dynamite, killing both Kennedy and himself. But upon seeing JFK, K, accompanied by his wife and young children, or people purporting to be his wife and young children, he decided to wait for another opportunity. Pavlik was indicted, but the charges were dropped after a judge ruled him insane. He remained in psychiatric confinement until 1966, but then died in 1975. And I, I'm just, I don't know. It just makes you wonder. What was he up to from 1966 to 1975? Was he repentant? Did he convert to Catholicism? Was he a fan of Bobby Kennedy's? And back in 1960, how easy was it to get a car full of dynamite? I mean, how much dynamite was floating around back then? Could you go to an army surplus or even a hardware store and buy the stuff? I've got so many questions, Richard. I think it was easily accessible <laughs> if you're a farmer or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, maybe you could go to TNT Depot and they'd have it over there. Possibly. <laughs> All right, you got the next one. This week in in history on December 16th, 1920, 101 years ago, this Thursday, in China, more than 250,000 people were killed in one of the most powerful and deadly earthquakes of the 20th century. And nobody is blaming the patron saint of the blind for this one. The so-called Haiwun earthquake measured 7.8 on the Richter scale with its epicenter in central China. It caused thousands of landslides, changed the courses of rivers, and swept several dozen villages off the map. Its effects were not only felt across China, but were, were even noticed as far distant as Norway, as unusual wave disturbances in bodies of water. While they were celebrating Santa Lucia Day. <laughs> Look at that. It keeps yeah, coming exactly. up. Exactly. 
The earthquake in China was also followed by aftershocks for three years. I've never heard of that before. Which left the survivors afraid to rebuild their houses. This caused even more death as people living in flimsy shelters froze to death in the severe winters of that region. Three years of aftershocks. You've never heard of that before, have you? Mm, Three years. Like a few weeks, maybe. A few days. Three years? That's ridiculous. I've got so many questions for this week's Rotten History. Finally, in Rotten History on December 16, 1945, 76 years ago this Thursday, in the Los Angeles suburb of Fontana, California, an explosion destroyed the newly built home of O'Day and Helen Short and their two children while they were all inside. Helen and the children soon died from their extensive burns. O'Day, however, remained hospitalized. He was a refrigeration engineer who had bought the land and built the house while disregarding warnings that he might encounter, no, not problems in building his own home, but trouble from white people in that neighborhood because he and his family were black. The local sheriff had warned him not to move in, and the real estate agent who sold him the property had even offered to buy it back at full price. So the real estate agent apparently found out after selling the property to O'Day that, uh, yeah, maybe the black people around this area are going to kill you. So the sheriff told him not to move in because, you know, white people, and so did the real estate agent. Of course, racism continues today, but that's some racism when the local sheriff as well as your realtor is warning you about the likely brutal racism of your new white neighbors. Rather than yield to the pressure O'Day had alerted black-owned media and the FBI. After his house blew up, the sheriff's office claimed that O'Day had caused the explosion himself while trying to light an oil lamp. That's how racist his community was. And I'm certain a refrigeration engineer does not know how to use an oil lamp. I mean, those things are really complicated, not like refrigeration. But an arson investigator hired by the NAACP found the oil lamp intact amid the charred ruins, and you'd think that the police would at least burn the lamp that they were going to blame it on, and concluded that the fire had been set on purpose by someone outside the house. O'Day lay in the hospital for several weeks, unaware that his wife and children were all dead, but shortly after being given the bad news that they had died, O'Day died as well. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Richard, do we have anybody to be scheduled? Uh, do we have anybody scheduled to be on tomorrow's show? Yes, we do, but it's going to take me a moment to uh, look it up. To look it up. All right, well, let me read something in the meantime while you're looking it up. We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board as Richard and Alex do, and Sebastian will begin do, uh, doing on the show here in January, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. What better way to start, start your new year with a new gig running the board here on This Is Hell? If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once, twice, three, four times a week. I don't care. Or once a week. It doesn't matter. Uh, at our studio right here above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Wednesday. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work with your schedule. This is your opportunity to have, an ac have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. And we actually pay our board ops a living wage. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. Of course, with this position, you need to live in the Chicago area. So, Richard, who is scheduled to be on tomorrow's show? Yes, tomorrow, Tuesday, we have Max Libro-Ron. Yeah, that's a tough one. I can't remember how it, I don't have it in front of me. I can't remember how it's On their article, Decolonizing 
Geoscience requires more than equity and inclusion that from nature. Nature, look at that, a peer-reviewed journal, I believe, I think. And on Wednesday, we're not sure, but we're working on something. And Jeffy. Of course. Doing the moment of truth. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing today's show. Thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. Thanks to Alex Jerry for doing all of the work in the preparation of the show when it comes to booking our guests. This week's Hangover Cure is White Rice. Thanks to our guest today as well, Martin Billheimer, author of Mother Chicago, Truant Dreams Inspectors Over the Gilded Age. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>